Well, today is the final week in our sermon series entitled, Who We Are Becoming, which is focused on our church's vision statement and our five core values. And I don't know if you noticed, but if you were in the foyer before you came in, there we have those posters on the wall. There's two new posters uh, that Alexa put together for us. Thank you, Alexa. Come on. Yes, you did. And they look great, and they have our five core values on there, and one has our vision statement, which reads, we are a Christ-centered, cross-cultural, and intergenerational community called to model unity, live prayerfully, generously, and redemptively in a broken world. Now, I remember the first time that I read that vision statement. It's when I was contemplating applying for this job here at Calvary, and I have read a lot of church vision statements, and most of them say something to the effect of being prayerful and generous and unified. But what really stood out to me from Calvary's vision statement was this commitment to live redemptively in a broken world. Living redemptively in a broken world. That's quite a tall task, but also a beautiful goal. To redeem something means to save or rescue it. The picture our vision statement gives us is that we are committed to living in such a way that our behavior will counteract the devastating effects brought upon our world by sin and evil. Wow. Living redemptively means that our lives will somehow restore the brokenness this world suffers from, and perhaps, by God's grace, our living in this way might rescue others from the destruction we once faced ourselves until God intervened and saved us through Christ's death and resurrection. Now, I don't know your story and how you came to faith, but this is exactly how God intervened for me. It was through other people's redemptive living that he rescued me. Through my parents and grandparents who's walking, who were walking in the way of Jesus and demonstrated faith, hope, and love. It was through Sunday school volunteers who taught me the way of salvation. It was through my youth leaders when I was a teenager who encouraged me not to give up when I was facing hard times, but to, to keep pursuing Jesus and to use my gifts to serve him in the church. Make no mistake about it, it is Jesus who leads the rescue operation and liberates us and this world from sin and death. But he enlists us, his followers, to help complete his mission in the world. And in Romans 12, the passage we're looking at this morning, the Apostle Paul describes what partnering with Jesus in his rescue mission looks like by living redemptively. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them with me to Romans chapter 12. Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. 
Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. For just as each one of us, sorry, for just as each of us has one body with many members and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. And if it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is, in, do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, the first thing that we see in this passage is that our worship of God demands way more from us than just our time and our money or even what we do here on a Sunday morning. Rather, our worship is the way that we live, and it requires our entire being. Paul tells us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, that this is your true and proper worship. Before Christ's death on the cross, the way that Israelite believers worshipped God was through animal sacrifice. So a worshiper would take one of the prized animals from their flock, or if they weren't a farmer, then they would purchase one, and they would bring it to the temple where that animal would be sacrificed on the altar. Now, they would make these animal sacrifices for many reasons. It could be to make amends for sins or to simply thank God for blessings in their lives. But ultimately, these animal sacrifices were how believers worshipped God. They sacrificed something costly in order to show their love for God and their gratitude to him for their salvation. 
Paul then uses this illustration to the Roman Christians that this is how they should view their entire lives as a sacrificial offering to God. Now, this is a vivid picture, right? One's whole self is laid out on the altar to be sacrificed. And we know what happens to those sacrifices on the altar, right? Death. But our sacrifice doesn't end in death. Paul says our worship is a living sacrifice. Now, this does not mean that we will not have to sacrifice some of our hopes and our dreams or put some of our desires and behaviors to death. We will. Jesus says that anyone who wants to follow him must be willing to deny themselves and take up their cross. Following God is very sacrificial. But in the same way that Christ's death resulted in our rescue, in new life for us, our self-sacrifice in worship of God will also result in life-giving redemption too. N.T. Wright says, The Christian's self-offering is actually all about coming alive with new life that bursts out in unexpected ways once the evil deeds of the self are put to death. But there are a couple of critical things that make this sacrificial way of worshiping God with our lives possible. I see two things that are necessary if we're going to actually be able to pull off living this sacrificial redemption way of living. The first is God's mercy. Paul says in verse 1 that we are to live this way in view of God's mercy. We cannot forget the reason why we worship God that it is because of how he has forgiven us of our sins, rescuing us from death, which is the consequences for our rebellion against him and his ways. God showed and he continues to show us every single day his love and grace and mercy, each one of us, providing for us with our food and shelter and clothing, being patient with us, and ultimately reconciling us to him through sending his son Jesus, who lived redemptively among us, showing us how we can live redemptively ourselves, and then he died in order to take our punishment that we deserve and pay the ransom for our disobedience. We need to keep this mercy before us, in view, constantly. It is essential for us if we are going to live redemptively to constantly have this before us. That's the first thing we need. The second thing we need in order to live redemptively, Paul says, is that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And part of this transformation, he says, is not passively conforming to the ways of the world around us, but actively rejecting what is false and bad and wrong. So we're not just conforming to the world, but we are actively rejecting what is not good. Now, this call to be countercultural does not mean that every single aspect of our society or culture is bad or completely wrong. There is still many good things to enjoy. There are beautiful ways in which 
non-believers still live that please God. However, Paul is calling us to deeply think through each aspect of our life. And not just to go with the flow, not to go along with the crowd. Rather, we need to be alert and to be determined to understand how and why God wants us to live in one way and not the other. Theologian Douglas Moo says, the renewal of our mind is a process. It doesn't happen automatically, and it doesn't change overnight. God's Spirit gives us a new orientation to our thinking, and our job is to cooperate with the Spirit by seeking to feed into our minds information that will reprogram our thinking in line with the values of the kingdom. Our job is to cooperate with the Spirit. He will do His part, but we need to proactively do our part for our maturing in order that our minds can be renewed. This isn't something that just passively happens to us. We play a part. And the primary source of information that we are to feed into our minds in order to be renewed is Scripture. And we accelerate our transformation by putting the commands of Scripture into action. Right? As James says, Don't just listen to the word, put it into practice. And then that is what verses 3 to 21 of Romans 12 are. They are a description of how and why God wants us to live that are in line with his good and pleasing and perfect will. These these combine to make a picture of how one lives redemptively. In these verses, Paul describes how we are to live redemptively with two groups, with Christians within the church, but also with unbelievers outside of the church. And in verses 3 to 13, he gives specific instructions how we can live redemptively with one another in the church. So beginning in verse 3, he says that we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but rather we should think of ourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of us. Now, I don't believe that Paul is telling us that we need to look down on ourselves. Rather, he is saying that we should be humble and that we should honestly evaluate ourselves. And remember, he's instructing them to think this way individually, but within the context of being a part of a church community where self-centered and prideful attitudes are harmful to the health of the community. Not only that, but if, if we're conceited and arrogant in our faith, we may come to the false conclusion or belief that we don't need the church, and we may be tempted to try and go it alone with Jesus. Now, on the other hand, I think we can sometimes think too little of ourselves, and I think this is a warning against that as well. See, thinking too little of ourselves is also unhealthy for us, and it's also unhealthy for the church family. I've often come across sisters and brothers in the church who don't recognize the gifts that God has given them, or they downplay themselves and their ability to be used by the Lord. And so 
they don't get involved or they don't serve in a particular area because they don't think that they are good enough, holy enough, important enough, you name it, enough. But Paul counters both of these ways of thinking, both the one, the thinking that we don't need others or that we ourselves are not needed. And he counters this way of thinking with an analogy of the body with all of its parts in order to describe the church in verses 4 to 6. He says, Each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to the others. Later on in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul goes into greater detail with his members of a body analogy, saying, Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would, for not, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if an ear should say, Because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. Friends, you are the body of Christ. And we need one another. We need each one of us to be healthy and functioning and serving one another. Otherwise, collectively, as the body of Christ, we will just limp along. And we cannot flourish the way that God wants us to and has designed us to when we are all serving and working together. Paul then, in verses 6 to 8, gives a few examples of the way that God has gifted individuals within the church in order to help the church community function well. Now, I want to be clear that in these verses— he lists, the list that he gives us is not an exhaustive one. There are many other ways that God gifts people that are not listed here. And I also want to stress that none of these gifts that you can see above me right now, not one of them is more important than the other. Could you imagine how awful it would be in this place if every one of us had the gift of teaching and no one had the gift of encouragement or mercy? What is clear from verse 6 is that each one of us has been given a different gift and that we are to use them in the service of the church. And this is one of the ways that you and I live redemptively. Now, some people will insist that even though they don't use their gifts to serve a local church, they can still use them to serve the universal church. That is the big church throughout the world made up of every believer that we all belong to, the universal church. And this is a wonderful thing, but 
Even though this distinction between the local and the universal church can be helpful in some ways, the idea that a disciple of Christ not being a part of and serving in a local church, it's inconceivable to Paul and the New Testament writers. Again, theologian Douglas Moo says, every individual church is simply the universal church in its local expression. We must seriously question then whether Paul would ever entertain the idea that a person would be a member of the universal church without being a member of a local church. He would never imagine any believer seeking to grow in his or her faith apart from the Christian community. Paul continues in verses 9 to 13 of Romans 12 to tell the Christians there how they are to live redemptively alongside one another within the local church, and his directions are very practical. He begins, love must be sincere. And that's where some of us stop and say, I thought you said it was going to be practical. Right? Love can be a vague idea for us. Sometimes it does not seem very practical. We talk about love as an emotion that often leads people to do some very impractical things. Right? But biblical love is more than this feeling. Biblical love is a verb. We show our love through our actions. In John 15, Jesus commands his disciples to love each other, and he tells them that they are to love each other in the same way that Jesus has loved them. And friends, we know how Jesus loved us. He says, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. That's just what Christ did for us, and that is just how we are to love one another in our church through sacrificially serving one another. In John 13, Jesus says, this is how we will be able to distinguish ourselves and be identified as his followers. Not by simply proclaiming that we are Christians, but he says, they will know that you are my followers by your love for each other. It's by loving one another within the body of Christ. Then in the same way that Paul listed some of the ways that God has equipped individuals in the church with gifts to serve each other, he then goes on to make a list of some ways that we can love one another in the church too. He begins in verse 8 by saying, Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord and share with those in need, and practice hospitality. Again, this is not an exhaustive list. There are many ways that you and I can love one another that aren't listed here. But I think what's critical for us to love each other well is the devotion that we show one another and how we honor each other above ourselves. I think devotion to one another, and honoring one another above ourselves is critical to loving each other well and living redemptively. You see, this sort of radical commitment to a group beyond ourselves or our immediate family, it is so countercultural and otherworldly that many Christians I speak to today even scoff at the idea of being so committed to a local church. But living redemptively isn't just about faithfulness to Jesus. Paul says it's also about 
being loyal in love to one another? Of course it is. When I send my children, when they walk out the door to go do something, I want them to live in a way that honors our family and shows that they love Andrea and me. And one of the best ways that they can do that is by being loyal to each other, having each other's back, caring for their brother. When they were little and we would send them off to somebody's house for a sleepover before they would go, we would remind them, don't fight with each other and look out for one another, right? This was the best way that they could represent our family and make us proud. And the same goes for God's children. We make our Heavenly Father proud and show Him love through our loyalty and commitment to each other through sacrificial acts of love, through caring for our brother and our sister, for having one another's back. And there are so many opportunities for us to demonstrate this kind of loyalty and love to one another here in this place. Let's just consider for a moment the opportunities that have been created by the announcement Reese told us this morning with his departure in a couple months. Our youth leaders do an amazing job of loving and being committed to our students here at Calvary. And we are so thankful for that. But they're going to need our loyalty and love over the coming months to help carry the ministry on in the meantime. And so we can show that we are committed to them and committed to our students by volunteering to bring a snack on a youth night or by volunteering to bring a devotional or even a testimony or maybe helping them to plan an event for students, or not just for students, but what about <gasps> with students? Whoa. Or maybe hosting students and groups in our homes or volunteering to drive for them. I hear they're going out to the corn maze. In the church I grew up in, I loved my youth pastors too, but there were seasons in my teenage years where we were without one. But that's when Others in the church demonstrated their loyalty and love for us. And wow, did that ever make an impression on me when I was a kid. It grew my understanding of church that this wasn't just some service provided for me. This was a family. And each one of us in the family are ministers, not just the pastors. My childhood church lived redemptively by caring for our youth group personally. And for me, it radically transformed me and renewed my understanding of church. And there are so many opportunities for us here at Calvary to live redemptively by serving one another here through being devoted in love. That's just one example. Paul then goes on to tell the Romans how they can live redemptively with those outside of the church in verses 14 to 21. When he instructs us to bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse in verse 14. Or when he says, do not repay anyone evil for evil in verse 17. These words, they should remind us of the words of our Lord, particularly in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. In that message, Jesus instructed his followers not to give in to a desire for revenge, which only escalates evil. He said, hey, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek as well. 
where he said to them, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. These are radical words. Particularly radical in light of events that are happening around the world today. Now, I'm not going to go into, weigh in on what governments should do or who's justified in what actions. But for followers of Jesus and those who claim to be children of God, retaliation and returning violence for violence, it's off the table. In fact, we are to do more than just not respond in kind. Paul says we are to respond in a truly revolutionary way. Now this is a way of living redemptively. We are to respond in love. He says, bless those who persecute you. Do not repay evil, but if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them a drink. In doing this, you will help, you will heap burning coals on their head. Now, this little phrase, heap burning coals on their head. See, Paul's not telling us to fight fire with fire. He says we are to show kindness to our enemies with the hope that they will become ashamed of their actions and seek the underlying reason why we can respond to their hatred with God's love. You know, growing up as an Anabaptist in the pacifist or the peacemaking Christian faith tradition, I have come to realize that there are few subjects that get people as riled up and angry as talking about nonviolence. It's ironic. And we can have endless debates about how God used violence in the Old Testament or talk about just war theories. But here's the thing. You cannot dismiss loving your enemy as an ineffective way of defeating them if you've never tried. Especially while nonviolent actions such as the civil rights movement in the United States led by Martin Luther King Jr. is just one example of how refusing to be overcome by evil and overcoming evil with good actually works. Dr. King said, why should we love our enemies? The first reason is fairly obvious. Returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So when Jesus says, love your enemies, he is setting forth a profound and ultimately inescapable admonition. Have we not come to such an impasse in the modern world that we must love our enemies or else? The chain reaction of evil, hate begetting hate, wars producing more wars, it must be broken or we shall be plunged into the dark abyss of annihilation. Of course, the ultimate example for us that loving one's enemy is the greatest way that you and I can live redemptively was Christ himself. Paul says in Romans 5 that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. In 1 Peter 2, the apostle writes, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. 
To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Friends, living redemptively by loving our enemies, this is not just theoretical or even theological. This is deeply personal. Rather than giving me what I deserve for my rebellion, Jesus overcame evil for me and for you. He is the light that drove out my darkness. He is God's love that drives out your hate. You and I do not need to fear being plunged into the dark abyss because rather than repaying us for what our sins deserve, God overcame evil with good through Christ's redemptive life and death and resurrection. And now he is calling us to do the same. To live redemptively with and for one another in the church at Calvary. Calling us to live redemptively for the world. So how are we going to go do that? Paul, he's made a few lists in Romans 12 of just some ways that we can. But now he's throwing the ball back in our court to think about this. I have four questions I want to leave us with from here to think about and prod us towards living redemptively. First, first question is, how are you serving the body of Christ with the gifts that God has given you? Maybe you're not. Maybe you don't even know what gifts you have. I would ask you to pray about it or talk to somebody who knows you well and ask them, what gifts do you think that I have that I can use to serve the church? And if you're waiting to be asked, let me, let this be the formal ask now. Please, serve the church. You can fill out one of these get involved cards that we have in the pew in front of you. But rather than waiting to be asked, why don't you approach someone with an idea or just the question, how can I get involved? Second, how are you devoting yourself to the church in love? Paul says, be devoted to one another with sincere love. You know, one of the ways that we can do this, Paul says, is very practical. He says, by sharing with others who are in need or, he says, by pursuing hospitality. He says it in a way, it says providing hospitality in the New Testament, I mean in the NIV, but in the original, it's more like this ongoing thing we should be pursuing, pursuing hospitality. Maybe you want to have somebody over to your house for lunch. Maybe you want to grab a couple of teenagers and take them out for a milkshake. How are we going to pursue hospitality in our church? Third, where can we overcome evil with good in our lives? Maybe you work in a hostile work environment and there's a coworker who drives you up the wall, but you can kill him with kindness, right? Or maybe it's in your home. Maybe you have an irate neighbor, you know, doesn't like the way you mow your lawn or something. How are you going to overcome 
evil with good. And finally, remember at the beginning of the message how I said that if we were actually going to be able to live these redemptive lives, then we needed to do two things. We needed to keep God's mercy in view and we needed to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So how are we going to do that this week? How are we going to keep God's mercy in view and renew our minds this week? You know, there are three things. There's more than this, but here's my little list. This is not an exhaustive list either, but there's three things that are the bread and butter of our maturing discipleship and being transformed when it comes to the Christian walk. It's reading our Bibles. It's spending time with the Lord in prayer, and it's gathering together with other believers for encouragement and prayer and confession of sin. These are like the bread and butter. There is more to that when it comes to our discipleship and maturing in faith. But uh, if you would like to talk more about that or you have some other ideas how we can do these things, I'd love to talk to you at the end. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up and lead us in a final song. And ask you to stand with me as we head into worship. Father and God, we thank we thank you so much for your great love for us. I'm so grateful you didn't only send Jesus to die for our sins, but that you gave him a ministry on earth that demonstrated what living redemptively looked like. Oh, how you showed redemptive love as you hung out with people who were rejected by society. You showed your redemptive love when you healed people, when you ate with people. You showed your redemptive love when you forgave people of their sins. And I pray that you would help us to walk in your ways and that we also would extend hands of healing, invitation to meals, that we would also forgive people for their sins. We thank you for your love and your grace in our lives for how you've redeemed us. And we pray that we would be your instruments of peace in this world as we go out from here today. Help us to love well. Help us to love each other well and to love this world that you so loved well too. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.